The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. I'm your host, Craig McManus, and this is episode three of the Garden Question podcast. Rick Smith is the pruning guru. In today's episode, your deepest pruning fears are comforted by Rick's interesting and high-impact stories. He explains why smart landscape design matters and how to avoid not-so-smart design mistakes. After listening, you will appreciate how he protects his clients' garden investment and why they trust him with their extraordinary gardens. In this episode of the Garden Question podcast, you will know why garden plants do better when they stay closer to their natural size, form, and texture. Rick reveals healthy plant management practices along with how his proven knowledge and experience helps prevent common pests and disease problems. Rick lectures throughout the southeastern United States to horticultural college students, garden clubs, landscape companies, and horticultural trade associations. He is featured in the University of Georgia Green Industry Super Crew Training Video and has appeared on PBS's Growing a Greener World with Joe Lample. Rick is the chairperson of the Georgia Certified Landscape Professional Advisory Board, also served on the board of directors and is president of the Metro Atlanta Landscape and Turf Association. His company, The Pruning Guru, was founded in 2002 after 15 years of developing his knowledge and skills with landscape trailblazing company, Pro's Properties. Our conversation with Rick Smith will begin after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Rick, why do plants need pruning? There's multiple reasons why they need to be pruned. Timing is essential based on the season, but in most cases, it's to prune diseased or dead branches out of the shrub or trees. It's also for symmetry and flowers is another reason. Pruning overall is really healthy for the plant. Thing is, is how to prune it. Pruning it with the proper equipment is key to a successful looking plant. Some you don't hardly have to prune at all due to being low maintenance, but plant that's high maintenance, let's say English ivy, for example, or either wisteria, those are pretty high maintenance. So yeah, you got to prune them pretty regularly unless you use a growth regulator. Do you use growth regulator? We use a couple products. We use Atromac, which is a foliar systemic, and we use Cutlass, which is a root systemic, which is a granule that you actually just put on the ground. And once it's watered, it gets absorbed into the root system and it creates less growing in the new foliage. You're pruning less. That's the point of it? Yeah, on those particular plants, especially when you have homeowners that were doing weekly maintenance and, you know, ivy and iliagnus, if anything like that, that takes up so much time, it's really better to control the growth on those so you can spend time doing something else. 
You spend an abundant amount of time in some rather extraordinary gardens. That has to be a blast. Oh my gosh, that is the best thing. The amount of gardens that I see blows me away. You can go one day and say, I'll never see a garden any better than this one. And then the following day, you'll see one that blows that one out of the water. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is just incredible. So the things that I see that people spend time and money in their gardens to keep it up like that, that's the way it should be. And that's what I love to do is to educate customers like that and also help them protect their investment for the long run. Have you noticed any shared characteristics in those gardens? Yes, they put the right plants in the right spots. What do you mean by that? Uh, For an example, a Leland Cypress, and they'll put it next to their front door because it looks small and it's kind of softens the wall, but they don't think about it five years down the road when all of a sudden now you can't even get in your front door. Obviously, you know, not too many people would use Leland Cypress at the front door, but since everybody's aware of how aggressive and tall and wide they get. Another good example is when people go and buy weeping dissectums of Japanese maples, they'll put them in a small spot when they're in a three-gallon container, and I'm assuming they don't know how large plants get because once they get really big and outside their space, then they want to call me up and say, hey, can you bring this back into bounds as it was three or four years ago? And unfortunately, I have to tell them, no, you can't. You know, this is something that really should have been pruned at the beginning to keep it maintained and also planted in the right spot the first time. Knowing your boundaries in your landscape and then matching the plan up accordingly is, is really a key to getting the right plant in the right location. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I worked with Post Properties back in the 80s and 90s, I mean, even those architects, they would plant ground covers in places that has no business in being planted. An example would be Carolina jessamine. It's beautiful. It has yellow flowers. It hangs down a wall, but you put them one foot next to a cypress tree where well, you know what's going to happen. The vines are going to climb all up in the trees and become a nuisance. They don't think about the consequences of uh, how plants are going to grow. And that's really with a lot of homeowners, too. They don't think about how plants are going to grow. That's why whenever I do PowerPoints, I ask everybody, what is the number one rule before you put a plant in the ground? And that's do your research. Find out how large it gets. Does it take full sun or shade? Your maintenance is driven by the design and knowing what's going to happen to that plant in the long run either makes your job easier or makes your job harder and produces a healthier landscape or one that's more challenged with the health. Absolutely. You know, my wife, when it comes to plants and us walking a nursery, looking at plants, she's asked me questions. I say, hey, can we put this here for an example? Let's plant a wisteria on the gutter. That'll look so nice. Well, I'm always a bad guy. I go, no can't do that. (laughs) So she doesn't even go to a nursery with me anymore because she knows I'm going to tell her something that she doesn't want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said that the greatest dangers to a landscape design is the power shear. What's your thoughts? No, absolutely. When you shear plants, what happens is whenever you make a cut on a branch, you create three or four or five sucker growths on that one particular branch. And then you come back and you prune those again later where you quadruple the amount of growth. What happens is the foliage gets 
so thick the air and light can't get into the center of the plant. All the foliage in the center falls off and now you just have a dome. Well, every time you shear that plant, it just gets a little bigger, a little bigger, a little bigger and the plant and the leaves on the inside still fall off. Then one day you're going to have to rejuvenate that plant, which is pruning your plant to where you're lowering it a half to two thirds of its existing size to rebuild that frame. And the other thing is, is that some people don't even realize that they need to do that and the plant starts dying. Let's say compacted hollies is a pretty common plant that people shear. Over time, not only does it have thin foliage, but the root system gets to the point to where there's not enough energy getting to the roots and you start getting one branch at a time that dies, which can also be created by Phytophthora, which is a fungus that can't be treated. And that happens to azaleas as well uh, over time. So shearing, all it does is create headaches and encourage diseases and fungal. Let's say you're totally addicted to power shearing. It's I think kind of like the Tim, the two man Tyler effect where you're, you feel like you got to have more power. You feel like you're doing this job faster. You're getting through it with a power shear. And let's just say you're totally addicted and you, you're not hearing anything we're saying about promoting diseases or interior leaf reduction. Is there any another step or an additional step that you can do to give a shrub or plant hope for a healthy life? Yes. Let's use Korean boxwoods for an example. Everybody loves to have that English garden. Look, and is shearing is really the best way to achieve that look that they want to achieve. And if that's the case, the best thing to do is go into the top a couple times a year and you're actually staggering your cuts to allow air and light in there. You're thinning the top of the plant out in order to get some new growth. Now, the mistake that people make when they do this is that they'll prune too deep into the plant when they should only prune maybe three or four inches deep. So that way the sun can allow some new growth. As long as you do that, uh, you're fine. But the argument that I would use about not shearing, and I pretty much convince people a lot of times by explaining it this way. A lot of times, the reason why people shear is mainly for speed, as you mentioned at the beginning. Thing is, is not only do you prune fast when you're doing this, you're also adding more clippings and it's a lot harder to clean up. Whenever you do shear, every cut you make, you promote growth, which means you're going to have to prune more and more. Let's say a hot summer, you'll have to prune, uh, let's say a lower petalum if you're shearing it, was it every three or four weeks? You can almost watch it grow. But if you go in and feather prune where you're actually going in and pruning the plant to where it looks more natural, uh, which is called uh, informal, you only have to prune that plant maybe three times a year versus six or eight times using shears. You could say the more you prune, the more you yes, have to prune. with shears. It was shears, yeah. With the shears, you're making a hundred bad cuts to one good cut with a hand pruner. That's right? correct. And you're holding the clippings in your hand while you're pruning and you just throw it on a tarp. And then once you're done, you just pick up the tarp and, and leave. If you're shearing, you're getting clippings all over the pine straw, the beds. You're having to re-rake it, maybe even sometimes having to put new pine straw down to hide the old clippings. 
Let's go back to the example of the Korean boxwoods that you're pruning into a formal hedge and you're developing straight lines in that shearing. On the sides, this is something I've always seen where people do those sides straight up and down. What's a better way to do that? I always recommend that when you're pruning the sides is to have a small angle to the front side, which would mean that the bottom section would stick out just a little bit further than the upper section. So that way you do have a small slope. That way the sun will hit the whole side and not just part of it. Because if you go straight up and down or accidentally push the bottom side in further than the top, where the top kind of sticks out a little bit further, it shades out the bottom and it becomes leggy. And that's what a lot of people do not like. And it's just basically not angling your shears correctly. Yeah, that back angle so important. It's, it's like it develops an umbrella effect on the plant and it, and it results in what I call a Dr. Seuss mm-hmm. plant where they're just all the foliage is on the top and the bottom just kind of shows all the gnarliness of the plant sometimes. What are some of your earliest garden memories? When I first started at Post Properties in 1982, I had a supervisor ask me to go prune a juniper that was in front of the leasing office and I had never really been taught how to prune. He gave me the instruction just go shape it up. Well, to me, shaping it up was tree forming it. <laughs> and this was an Andorra juniper. It looked horrendous. Now that I look back at it, when I first did it, I was so proud of myself. But when my supervisor and his boss came up and saw that, they had a conniption and we had to dig it up and replant it. Moral of that story is never send someone to do a job, especially in a focal area that you've never given instructions to and don't ever assume that they know what they're doing. I'm always in the belief that whenever I'm training my guys that they go behind the shrub and start pruning. So that way, if they make a mistake, the mistake's in the back of the shrub, not in front of the shrub. That sounds like a very valuable lesson, a very valuable mistake. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Is that I prune Nico blue hydrangeas down to the ground and also rejuvenated a rosemary hydrangea when I cut it down. It didn't bloom. The rosemary, I didn't realize at the time that it didn't have buds below the green. So when you rejuvenate it, it never produced new foliage and it died and I ended up having to replace them. Mistakes can happen. As long as you learn from them and they're not a huge expense by making that mistake. Valuable lessons. In your professional career, who's been the biggest influencer on you? I would say the Georgia Urban Ag Council, just because there's so many professionals that's in that group that you can go and get any sort of information from any of those guys and feel comfortable that it's the right answer. If they can't find the answer, they'll find someone who will know the answer. The other influential uh, people are owners of companies that I've gotten to know, landscape companies throughout Atlanta that I can call or they feel comfortable calling me and we just kind of help each other. And that's that's what it's all about. Don't ever be shy to call and ask questions because if you don't ask a question, how are you going to learn. Whenever I do my PowerPoints, I encourage people to, to call me, call the office and ask for me. So that way I can give them answers. I have people calling me South Georgia landscape owners and say, hey, I'm not sure about this. What's your thoughts? And to me, that just gives me the biggest thrill. I'm teaching someone and <laughs> yeah. they're wanting to learn. 
There's quite a network community in our industry. I know that. Tell us about your garden. My garden, when it first started, it was just nothing but English ivy. My wife at the time was my girlfriend. And how I met her was that she said, oh, you, you work in landscape. Can you come over and look at my yard? And I went, sure. Didn't know that the yard was going to end up being mine, but she had all English ivy. And after doing the design and, of course, to me, putting a garden in, it takes years. So if I go by and see a plant, I'll stick it in the ground. And over time, I've really built garden that's involved in something that's useful. For example, when people come over, they walk around on the trail, the burn pits, they all hang out and feel like that they're in kind of a tranquility. The problem is, as you've heard the say, that a plumber has a leak in every faucet of their house. Well, it's kind of like in my yard, uh, nothing gets pruned. And then my wife goes out and does it. And then I have to say, ah, that's not how you do it. And then she said, well, get your butt out there and get it done. So that's what my garden's like. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite tree? I would say really close, a weeping dissectum, Japanese maple, or either a styrax, uh, japonica. The weeping dissectums, they're different. They prune them right, and they have nice structural to them. The styrax, they have the blooms on them are just incredible. One thing about the weeping dissectums, the reason I like them, is that I never see two that look the same. For an example, I pruned one this summer that was literally the largest one I've ever not only pruned, but seen. It was planted in in the 60s and it was probably 15 foot tall and I literally climbed up in it to prune it and the branches were probably six inches in diameter. This is the branches, not the trunks. Wow. And that's, I would say the weeping dissect would probably be my most favorite plant. A favorite shrub? Yes. My favorite shrub would probably be the Florida anise and the fatsia. The Florida anise can take a shade. It's evergreen. It, it has a good smell to it. The fatsia to me is the most underused plant because it takes deep shade. It covers a good space and it has a cool bloom. How is that on cold hardiness in our zone seven? Both of them are really good. The fatsia, I have one in my garden that's probably 10 years old and it has never uh, gotten bit by the cold. Now, if you plant a new fatsia, let's say uh, in a new landscape, if you do that in the middle of winter, you're, you're going to get a uh, freeze burn. But if you let it get established for one year, it'll be fine. One thing that I've found that it's helpful in creating a year-round interest in a garden are the red berries in winter. And I've noticed that some landscapes plants don't bury at all, whereas in others, you just have abundance of berries. What do you think happens with that? Are you speaking of hollies? Are you speaking of deciduous plants or like nandinas? Well, let's take hollies, for example. I noticed this year that hollies are loaded with berries. And I really don't think that that has anything to do with pruning. It has everything to do with the climate. Past two or three years, we've had a lot of moisture in the ground. The weather's been perfect to create a situation where a lot of berries will be produced. A lot of one thing that people don't realize has been in Atlanta for a short period of time or even a long period of time. But if you've been in Atlanta as long as I have, you would know that this year, the wintertime, or should I say the fall, the winter, and the spring, this is the way the weather is supposed to be. This is what we are 
are used to. For 30 years, we have had a fall that's been off-dated. The winter's been not correct. We go from winter to summer sometimes. But this year, 2021, the end of 2020, this is the way the seasons are supposed to fall. Kind of like the elusive normal year. Yes. <laughs> um, and a lot of people don't realize it because my customers will sometimes go, I don't understand why these plants are acting like this. The camellias, for an example, some of them aren't blooming yet and they're not used to seeing it because we haven't had a normal season in 30 years. Let me ask you this, because I was thinking burying on second year wood. Is that the case with some plants? That's a good question. I would say some plants would be, yes. For an example, Alex Verticolata, the deciduous hollies, Mm -hmm. that that might be the case. Nandinas, they bury all the time. But hollies, that's a good question. I really don't know the answer. I think hydrangeas is a very high return on investment and easy to grow plant. Would you sort out the confusion on how to prune a hydrangea for the maximum bloom production? Absolutely. In order to get the maximum blooms from the hydrangea, one, the point that it goes in the ground is uh, crucial because you need a prepped bed. Two is maintaining it to where you're not allowing leaf litter and stuff to collect in the middle of the crown because it creates stem rot. After that, once you achieve those two parts of it and keep it like that, pruning is the most crucial part of it. So let's use Nico Blue Hydrangeas, the macrophyllus. They bloom off of second year wood, which means that if you prune them down to the ground, you're not going to get any blooms for that plant for two years. Make sure that you go in and prune all the dead out of the plant is crucial. When you do that, make sure that the plant is the branch is completely dead because the mistake that a lot of people make is that they'll see the six inches of the top of the branch that's dead and they'll immediately go all the way down to the bottom and prune it out. And then when you pull that branch out, well, you've just cut probably 10 or 15 buds off because you realize that that whole stem wasn't dead. Pruning it every year really helps keeping the plant healthy as long as you do the process of keeping the dead out of it, keeping the crown cleaned out and periodically taking out some of the height if you need to. The limelight hydrangeas, which bloom off of new wood, the same thing if they're not tree form, but if they're just a shrub, you always want to keep the leaf litter cleaned out. You, you notice I'm harping on that because that's something that I see all the time and that will allow stems to start dying. And if you have stems that are dying, where well, you're going to have less blooms. So that's why it's really important. You can prune limelights hard, again, keeping the dead out of them is crucial as well because if you allow dead branches to stay there, they start decaying and getting into the cambium of the main trunks. And then from that point on, the plant will start producing less blooms. Pruning those each year really produces a lot of blooms. The biggest mistake that I see with limelights is people have the perception that all hydrangeas get planted in the shade. That's a hydrangea that gets planted in full sun. If you plant it in the shade, you're not going to get a lot of blooms. You put it in full sun, you're going to get all kinds of blooms. The biggest question I get about hydrangeas, how do you know whether they bloom off of old wood or new wood? I had someone explain it to me that really made a lot of sense, is that if you have a hydrangea that has a really fat bud, and if it gets stuck up your nostril, if you stick it in there, that it blooms off of old wood. If you have a little beady bud on it, they all bloom off of new wood. The large bud that would be an exception would be the endless summer, but how do you know 
if it's an endless summer, if you didn't put that plant in the ground. When it comes to hydrangeas, there's so much involved that you need to know about. And a lot of it is simple knowledge. Fertilization is also a key to producing good foliage and blooms. Let's step into fertilization then. What is a good fertilization practice? Hydrangeas or even azaleas, we use a all-purpose fertilizer, which is 14-14-14 by Lesco. The reason I like that fertilizer is it has a lot of micronutrients in it. Instead of just the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, you have a lot of other elements in there that really help support the root system uh, on all plant material. With that, uh, you only use it sometimes. Sometimes once a year, if it's just your normal, let's say, hollies. But if you're fertilizing azaleas, it's good to fertilize before and after they bloom. And hydrangeas are the same way, uh, before and after they bloom. Is there any kind of helpful pruning rule that will help one remember the best time to prune a blooming plant for the best bloom yield? Yes, always prune it after it blooms, which is the the rule of thumb. A lot of the people or customers, for example, even landscapers, they'll go and prune before it blooms and ends up cutting a lot of the buds out. But if you use that number one rule, always prune it after it blooms, you should be good to go. Azaleas, for an example, if it's a Gigi Gerbing, for example, only blooms once. If you prune it right after it blooms, uh, which is usually sometimes in May, as long as you don't prune it after 4th of July, you'll be fine. If you prune it after the 4th of July, actually not advisable if you're going to do a hard prune, but if you're just doing a light touch up here and there and you're just taking out the long, taller growth, that's okay. You're, you might remove the blooms off of that one little growth, but you're going to have so many blooms left over that um, it's not going to make that much of a difference. What about azaleas that bloom two or three times a year, like the Encore azaleas? How do you prune those? Mainly for shape. I would say that once they finish blooming, you can give them some shape, I would say up to a month after they bloom. So that way to give them a chance to produce the next set of buds. You know, you're not really going to do any harm to the Encores if you prune just a little bit too much because they do bloom so much. Know your plant is scheduled to bloom and know when is the cutoff time not to prune it. Another example would be a Sasanqua. They have a longer span that you can prune that plant before they start producing the buds for the next blooming cycle. So Sasanquas bloom in October. I believe they start setting buds in August. Sometimes in July, it's all based off of weather, soil temperatures, and visually seeing the buds. Last summer, the buds actually formed quicker than I anticipated. The fact is, as I noticed it, told all my guys, don't prune any more Sasanquas unless you're just taking off any wild spikes because they've already produced buds for the next blooming cycle. Being observant and knowing your plant will determine and help you with the maximum blooming yield. Who benefits most from your work, you or your clients? I would say my customers do. Because when they call me, they want the information that I provide to them because my theory is to educate the customer so that way they know what they're receiving. An example, whenever I go to do an estimate for a new customer, they want me to give them information, not for me to wait for them to give the information because they're hiring me for my knowledge. That's why I always tell everybody when you meet a customer, educating the customer is the number one rule because that way when you do that they feel like that they're getting 
negotiating what they pay for. You've been successful in educating them and they call you up and say, I would like to proceed because I really like what you told me. That really benefits me because it makes me feel good that I was able to educate them enough to feel comfortable. What do you wish landscape designers would do better? Uh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> we got time. Yeah, I would say that before a landscape architect becomes a landscape architect is that they work out in the field with a company that cares about what they do. They have customers who has a large select plant material. So that way they can actually see how a plant grows over time. When I worked with Post uh, for so many years, I have had conversations conversations and conversations and conversations with some of those architects and look, you guys really need to come work with us for about a month to two months because you're putting plants where they shouldn't be. You're planting junipers underneath a maple tree that you just planted and you're not considering what's going to happen once that tree gets large and then it's going to shade out the junipers and junipers don't like shade. So if you do it right the first time, you're not going to be costing the client more money in the long run. Look up. When you put a tree, is there a power line there? I can't tell you how many times I've seen power companies come in and just butcher the top of them because the architect didn't have the foresight to look up and go, oh, this tree's going to grow into that. Power company's going to come and butcher the top of this. I see it all the time. Also, I just wish you would spec plants far enough away from other plant material instead of giving that impact look that they're looking for because it's not giving the plants room enough to grow. The biggest ones that I see now that drives me crazy is the green giant thujas. They will plant them six feet away from each other, knowing that that plant will get 15 foot wide and they will just end up crowding each other. With that said, they could have planted less trees. Customer that I have right now is that they planted five green giant thujas so tight, not thinking about how they're going to be in 10 years from now when they could have just planted three and got the same results and the plant groupings would look better. When they put a full sun plant in the full sun where it is supposed to be, but if they do plant a tree behind them, think in advance on how large that tree is going to get. And is that sun loving garden immediately going to turn into a shade loving garden? And then they're going to have to redo it at a later date. Roses, for an example, knockout roses. Five years down the road, when that tree gets large, those roses aren't going to bloom as well. When you're planting crepe myrtles, don't plant them so close to a natural area because that natural area is going to grow outward and upward and shade that crepe myrtle out. And you can fertilize a crepe myrtle all day, every day long, and it's not going to bloom in the shade. I don't care what you do to it. Putting a, a crepe myrtle so close to a sidewalk or a driveway or any plant material so close to the driveway or sidewalks, it's going to impede at a later date. It's really knowing what this plant is going to do over the long term, the 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Although you want an immediate impact, you want a long term sustainability to that plant and to that landscape where it's flourishing 10 years down the road. The vision is for 10, 15 years down the road, but you're doing a higher impact at the beginning. Is that Would that be a good way to think of it? Yes, absolutely. That's, to me, that's number one thought whenever I go to a mature landscape. I can tell the difference between a good architect and a bad 
bad architect based off a mature garden, whether they planned ahead or not. And trust me, there's a lot of great architects out there who really put some thought into it. But there's some that you can tell that have no experience because they just learned or they just got out of the school. You know, they think that they know everything. Those are the ones that are dangerous. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Any other thoughts that you think landscape designers or garden designers ought to do different? I think that the architect that draws out a plan needs to follow through with the company that they hire to put the plant material in and make sure that it's one, put in right, that the installers put the plant exactly where he wants it to be. Because if you don't, there's going to be some retransplanting. Architects just really need to, Mm -hmm. to me, that's the biggest thing is not following through. They follow through with they follow through with the customer, but they don't follow through with the installer. Yeah. And I've seen that quite a bit. Contractor and architect relationship needs to be a good one and not an adversary relationship too, I would think. Oh yeah. Yeah, because you you don't want a landscape maintenance company to come behind the installer and say, Why are these plants too deep? Why are these plants planted so close to the sidewalk? Don't you know that you can do all the pruning in the world to these things and you can't keep it away from the walkway over time? The way I explain it to a lot of people is that you can put a puppy in a cage and you can give that puppy a haircut every single day, but that puppy's still going to outgrow that cage. That's the same principle with plants. You can prune it every day, but this eventually going to end up overgrowing that space. And that's what's not being planned ahead. That's a great illustration. I like that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) There's more good stuff with Rick Smith after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. There is a high-impact design element that garden and landscape designers often use called massing. It's where you group like plants together so they grow together to form a higher visual impact. How do you approach pruning this type of planting? Oh, that's easy. You know, with the experience working with post properties, that's, you know, what I'm geared up to. As long as the homeowner is explained that, hey, we want this to be a mass planting pruned to where it looks manicured versus little green meatballs. A lot of homeowners say, for some reason, they like those green little meatballs, have them separated. They never want them touched. Those are kind of gardens that I cannot stand pruning. But to me, that's not what the design was meant to become. I love mass plantings, especially, let's say, a frontage of where the speed limit is, you know, 45 miles an hour. Well, if someone's going 45 miles an hour and you have little bitty plant where they're not going to see it. But if you have a mass planting and let them grow together in that person's eyes, that's going to go, oh, wow, that looks pretty cool. Knowing your audience, I think is so critical too on your design is that your audience is sitting in the car passing by fast versus walking around in your backyard and that garden is a whole lot different perspectives. Yes, I agree. And at the end of the day, it's really the customer's choice, however way they want it. But all you can do is give them the choice. Say, hey, this would look a lot better if keep this as a mass instead of individualized. But some people like what they like. 
That's the educational process, I think, that, that pays off in dividends. And, and it really goes back to getting your return on your investment in your design is by taking what that intent of the design is and bringing that out. I always thought it might be a personality that certain personalities like green meatballs and others like naturally formed plants. Have you ever noticed any correlation between clients and the type printings they like? I sure do. A lot of the times it's based off of what they've seen most of their adult life, how things have been pruned. So let's give an example. Go into a subdivision that's 20 years old. I can tell that a bad landscaper has gone in there and has been in there for a long period of time because this time of year, every crepe myrtle in all the homes are crepe murdered. And that's because one neighbor thought that that was the right way of doing it. So the other neighbors thought that was the right way of doing it. So every tree you go into has been murdered. But if you know that a customer has been educated by a great landscaper is when you go into a neighborhood and all the plants are pruned like it's supposed to be. They're not crepe murdered. You know, it's what they've seen because some people live in their homes for 20 or 30 years and all they've seen is the green meatballs. Well, this is what I want. You know, I've been to Disney World. This is what they do. And I know if it's Disney World, they know exactly what they're doing. Well, you haven't done the back tours of Disney World like I have to know that a lot of them plants, they replace all the time because they outgrow the spot or they've been pruned wrong. One thing that I've noticed, and I guess it's more in magazines, I have experienced a couple of these gardens. It's more of what you've got the modern architecture, which is, to me, looks like building blocks stacked on each other, a lot of straight lines, very little curvilinear lines. But the landscape that seems to go with those type buildings is a modern design, which probably is equivalent to, I guess the best way to explain it would be a chessboard where you've got 64 squares and every other square, you plant the same plant. Say a river bird gets planted in every other square over this landscape. It's a monoculture, but it's same plant in every spot. To me, it's rather boring and it doesn't connect you back with nature. Have you had any experience with these type of landscapes? Oh, yes. And it's monotonous be a good uh, word to use. It's that it just looks like it was just thrown together and no thought was put into it. To me, it doesn't give the property that awe. You know, when you look at it, you go, man, this is beautiful. When you looked at a post properties, for an example, has lived long enough or been in one to know of post properties is that two buildings were never landscaped the same. There was always multiple plant material in front of the buildings and in the back of the buildings. And that's because it gives a different flow. And when each plant is pruned like it's supposed to, for an example, if you have an anise that's supposed to be one height and dwarf yellow pines are supposed to be a little smaller, you have that step down effect. But if people are just prune them straight across. And when you have three or four different plant materials and they're all the same height, to me, you kind of defeat the purpose of the design. When you have continuity into the landscape, it gives you that eye popping, wow, this is really nice. But in commercial properties, for example, as you just mentioned, they're just going for, let's just have a straight line and don't worry too much about aesthetics. I think post property probably had the biggest impact on Atlanta, especially on it being such a green and a, a garden city. And it, and it put the desire in people's heart to have what they were doing because I was working at hikes at that time. It was the early eighties, middle eighties. And we would often get people that would come in and say, I want what they've got down at that post property. And so it would put the desire in there, but it would also, I think the people that lived in post properties, they came to expect that it 
when they moved out and back that or want that at their own home. What do you think? Did you know that Post Properties was the first company to bring curved sidewalks in versus straight line? No, I didn't know that. When you give that curve a look and then you put plants with that curve, that just gives a whole new eye-popping look to the property. Everybody knows Post Properties by their tulips. In the 80s, Post used 3% of Holland's bulbs. I planted more bulbs in my lifetime that people could only imagine. And that's why I could care less if I plant any bulbs in my house. My wife goes, oh, I want to plant tulips. I want to plant daffodils. And I say, well, have at it because I'm not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) It burnt you out, right? Oh, my gosh. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands. Let's say, for example, if you know where the clock tower is on 41 in Marietta, you know, just one bed would take 30 crates of tulips. Each crate had probably a thousand to fifteen hundred tulip bulbs in it. That's just one bed. Mm. You were talking about crate murder. I don't remember in the eighties that that occurring then. When when did that really start taking hold? Was it in the nineties? And why do you think it started? You know, that's a good question because as I look back and think, I can't think of any crate murdering going on either. In fact, I'm wondering if Post Properties is one who actually used more crate myrtles than most people. When people did start using them, that people say, hey, it's just easier if you just get a chainsaw and just cut them in half Mm -hmm. and we'll maintain them from there. But you never saw that on the post properties ever. You know, a lot of questions come across is, do you even have to prune a crepe myrtle? The answer is no, you don't. If you do prune it, it's mainly to keep the plant contained in a particular spot. So I would say that when people planted a bunch of crepe myrtles, they didn't know how to prune them, nor did the landscape company. So they just butchered them each year because one person did it and everybody thought, wow, that's cool. Let's do it. Yeah. I got a theory that it was one lazy landscaper that didn't know what he was doing in an office complex, and he did it, and then everybody else it started mimicking it across the world. It only takes one person. Yeah, yeah. Crepe myrtle, to me, when it's structurally pruned, is one of the most beautiful plants because it's beautiful not only when it's blooming, but in the winter. It's sculptural to me. They're just a gorgeous plant. You're right. Oh, yeah. You rob yourself when you do that, just whacking it off. You create a really ugly head there and you're stressing the plant out. It's susceptible to more diseases and insects, promotes trunk decay. It's flat out ugly. I don't care if that's what you like. It's just creating a lot of stress and negative situations. I know the blooms delayed. I had a situation where we had a structurally pruned crepe myrtle versus crepe murdered crepe myrtle. And it was a month and a half later before that one that was crepe murdered began its bloom cycles versus the one that was structurally prudent had its natural shape. That makes a lot of sense. It's just a practice that I really wish it would stop because it just drives me insane. It's not something I believe in. And I tell you what else loves a murdered crepe myrtle is ambrosian beetles. Oh, yeah. Tell us what ambrosia beetles are. So the ambrosian beetles is a little beetle that will actually bore into the trunk of a weak plant, and it pushes the sawdust out, and it appears to be a toothpick. And sometimes the plant don't even have to be really weak, but when you do give a plant improper pruning like that, it does weaken the tree or the shrub, and those will go, whoo, cotton candy, go in there and start doing that. I've seen it a hundred times. 
things. I'll give you an example where it affected a nice, healthy tree, and it was in my own garden, and it was a Styrax that I bought that had a three-inch diameter. And one morning, I was driving off, and I saw some shiny stuff on the trunks, and I was going, what in the world is that? And I backed up, and it was probably 500 little toothpicks sticking out of the trunk, going all up and down. Oh, I was sick to my stomach. Oh, I had to cut it down, put it in the fire, and oh, burn man. it up. That's a sad tale. You know, the thing about crepe myrtles to me, too, is it's an easy solve problem. Crepe myrtles come in all different sizes and shapes. If you go back to what we were talking about earlier, just knowing where this plant is going to mature. Because you can get natchez, for example, that go 25, 30 feet. Or you can get cultivars that'll grow only 10 or 15 feet. And you can get other crepe myrtles that'll grow 4 feet, 5 feet. And then I've even seen ground cover type crepe myrtles. So you really can select the right crepe myrtle for your location. But let's just say you don't get that chance. To, to pick your crepe myrtle and you have a plant that's going to grow 25 or 30 feet, how do you maintain it back at the 10 and 15 feet that you need to do? Keeping it pruned from the very beginning is always the key, but a lot of times you inherit a tree that someone put in the wrong spot. A couple things you can do. If it has truly overgrown the area, let's say that it was planted too close to the house, I recommend cut them down, allow the sucker growth to come back up, cut all the sucker growth out except for about three of them start retraining that tree uh, that way you can keep maintaining that but knowing that every 15 20 years or so that's going to have to take place and that's where the architect comes in plant the plant in the right spot and don't put someone in that situation where they have to make tough decisions to prune the crepe myrtle harder than what it's supposed to be pruned one of the questions that people ask me let's say you inherit a crepe myrtle that has the large knots on it. What do you do? Do you keep pruning it in the same spot? First question I'll ask them is how big around is the trunk where the knot is? And if they say, you know, three or four inches in diameter, go ahead and cut the knot off. The first year, allow the sucker growth just to, to grow because you're going to end up getting that spindly growth anyway. The second year, it should have grown three or four more feet and those sucker growth will get a little thicker. That's when you can retrain that tree and only above that knot, never prune it below again. And that's a process of three to four years for that to totally develop that structure back in it. It, it is. That tree really should never been planted there in the first place talked about some pruning malpractices, but let me ask you this question, and I, I know we've already answered some of this, but maybe you can come up with another one. Is What one pruning malpractice do you wish that would just go away? I cannot tell you how many weeping dissectum Japanese maples and regular upright Japanese maples have been sheared in the meatballs. Really? Wow. That makes me sick to my stomach. Any others? Pretty major one, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if somebody's doing it to a landscape that I've designed. Oh, man, it just burns me up. I have to watch myself when I observe that. <laughs> oh, i tell you something else that drives me insane is when people use a stick edger to prune junipers off a curb. Oh, boy, yeah. Or shears. Yeah, you just get that straight cut. Yep. What would be the better practice on that? Feather pruning it from the get-go. This is if it's a ground cover. Lift up the longer shoots and prune it a little bit behind the green that's not so close to the curb. Staggering your cuts as you're going and still having the foliage look natural. That really has to be explained in person yeah. uh, while you're doing it because it's kind of a hard thing to explain. 
Yeah. You're hiding those cuts back into the foliage. The longer runners, you're hiding those back into the foliage. So yep. it goes away, but it still keeps that natural look. You explained that very well. I was wondering, that's what feather cutting is? Yeah, feather. I call it feather pruning. Mm-hmm. Feather pruning. Okay. Because I hadn't heard that term before. I think I may have invented that myself. I'm not sure. Okay. We'll give you credit then. <laughs> Is it safe to prune your round? It's based off the plant. In general, hollies, you can prune anytime. Junipers, you can prune anytime. The number one question is, what is that plant you're pruning and what's the consequences going to be if you prune it at the wrong time? What about pruning it too late in the year and creating new growth before winter? Do you see that as a problem? One of the questions that I'll ask is, when's the best time to rejuvenate a plant? Rejuvenation is where you're reducing the size of the plant by half to two-thirds of their existing size to rebuild that frame. When's the best time of the year to do that? You would be amazed how many people would say the fall. That is the absolute worst time to rejuvenate the plant. The reason is, is because it does promote that new growth. If you get a warm spell during the winter and then all of a sudden you get a cold snap like we're receiving right now, you can pretty much kiss that plant new growth goodbye. The other reason is, is you're going to be looking at ugliness from, say, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. That's pretty much six to seven months you're going to be looking at ugliness. Rejuvenating the plant to encourage new growth based off the weather, it would be sometimes end of April. And do the rejuvenating pruning then? Yeah, between that window. I wouldn't get too close to the summertime. This is one thing that people do not take in consideration if they rejuvenate a plant in the middle of the summer. In the plant's world, you have to give that time to produce new foliage and harden off before winter hits. It's funny when you're talking about the middle to the end of the summer, then you're bringing up winter. You're going, well, winter's a long ways away. But in a plant's world, it takes sometimes that long to produce the foliage, form a nice shrub, and for the new growth to harden off before the cold weather sets in. If not, if you do it too late, sometimes that plant's not going to produce the amount of foliage that it needs to to look like it's supposed to and go through the whole winter until the following year. So timing's everything when it comes to pruning. Yeah. What about ornamental grasses? What are your thoughts on pruning them? Ornamental grasses should be really cut back in January. And goal is to get it as low as you can because with ornamental grasses, if you leave it up too high, the center of it will start collecting debris throughout the season and it collects in the center and it starts rotting. That's the reason why when you see some of the older properties and they cut miscanthus or pampas back, it's hollow in the center and you have a circle around the outer outer edge of it. So my recommendation would bring it down as far as you possibly can. You're not going to hurt it. They're tough. I always have a hard time cutting it early. I always try to get people to cut it as light as possible. But the money you invested in that plant with the blooms that are up and blowing in the wind and give you winter interest and garden interest. And by doing it later, say like in a late February or early March, you're getting the most of that garden interest. Is there anything wrong with waiting later like that? No, absolutely not. And that's actually a good point in the landscape design is if that's part of the visual interest that was meant for the design, then absolutely, you can wait until the last minute to cut it down to the ground. 
I don't know if you've seen some of the DOT plantings that are being done now. It seems to be heavily toward grasses. I was not a big fan of what they were doing. It's starting to grow them, and I'm starting to like it more with the ornamental grasses. And I think it's more native grasses, too. I don't know if you're ever on I-20 at Six Flags. They've got a really massive planting there of the ornamental grasses. They've started pruning that, and it's to me like, guys, these things are blooming. They're doing such a great job here entertaining you as you go by at 70 miles an hour. And, you know, why are we cutting the now I'm just seeing all these little grass stubs sticking out, and that's not near as attractive, though. It's like, come on, let's wait. But I know you can't wait till that last few weeks of optimum time. Well, I'll give you an example, especially working with post properties. We had so many properties that if we had time to wait to enjoy the aesthetics of each plant, then prune it back, that's one thing. When you have a large volume of plants that you need to prune, unfortunately, you have to have a window to start and you got to have a window to end. Sometimes you just have to do what you have to do because there's just not enough time in that frame to hit everything. And that could be the situation with the DOT as well. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It's just, it's more than you can possibly do. And by the time it's got to be finished, you you just can't get it all done. Anyway, I I would think leaving your blooms as long as you can for the the homeowner or the private property owner would be just beneficial and get the full return on your investment. I agree with that. What else should I ask you? A lot of people ask me, when's the best time to rejuvenate an overgrown azalea? A story that I love to tell when it comes to this is that I did an estimate for an older lady that she was probably 80, 85 years old. She had some azaleas that really need to be rejuvenated. I told her that we really needed to consider rejuvenating all of her azaleas in order to make it a healthier plant. She said to me, young man, you're not going to touch my dang azaleas. And I went, okay. So we walked around a little bit and I said, can I at least educate you a little bit on why you should do that to the azaleas? She goes, oh yeah, you can talk to me all day long, but you're not going to touch my azaleas. I went, okay, well, here's what the process is. If you rejuvenate your azaleas late February and sacrifice your blooms, that's the process you need to go with. But the reason is, is that the azalea, when it produces a bud, it takes a lot of energy out of that root system. And then later on, that azalea produces a bloom, it takes even more energy out of the root system. And if you rejuvenate it after it blooms, well, now you're asking that plant to produce foliage after it just ran a marathon. So if you rejuvenate it in February, all that energy is still in that root system. So it's going to produce nice, healthy foliage. And yes, again, you will have to sacrifice your blooms and you would also need to fertilize them. She thought about it. She goes, okay, let's do it. All because I educated her and explained to her why it's beneficial. So that's one story I love telling. That's a great story. I like that one. You got any more stories? A customer that continuously had us prune their needlepoint hollies at their front of their house, continuously asked them to let me rejuvenate it because it's harder to and longer to spend time keeping that in shape in the small little spot it is. Please let me rejuvenate it. After about three or four years, he finally let me rejuvenate it. When it came out and produced some new foliage, he looked at me and said, you know what? I cannot believe it took you so long to talk me into that. I wish I'd asked you to do it three or four years ago. 
Well, explain how you rejuvenated that needle point. Simple. It's needle point hollies or other hollies. You know, you can throw it in the middle of 285 and let 100 cars run over it and put it back in the ground and it'll come back out with no problems. In that situation, we brought it down by half and cleaned out any of the crossing branches, any dead wood, pruned it back away from the sidewalk and the house, uh, basically just to keep it contained in that one spot. Kind of looked like a bottle tree, I bet, when you finished it. Oh, it looks like a bomb hit it. That's what I tell all the customers. I said, this shrub is going to look really bad for two months. If we did it right when the growing season started, it'd take two months for it to fill out. One thing that really contributes to the speed of a plant next to a house is the radiant heat that's coming from the house itself really speeds up new growth as well in the buds. There's so much to really think about when it comes to pruning. And people wouldn't even think about the radiant heat coming off a house onto a plant that would make it produce foliage quicker. Experience is really what everybody needs in order to know how plants respond. When I hire people, I tell them that you're not a guru until a year and a half later because you have to know how to prune, when to prune it, how that plant responds, and then you need to actually see it after it goes through that growing process so that way you know whether you did the right thing or the wrong thing. Now, I know you've traveled internationally. I, I believe you took a trip to South Korea yeah. and you observed plantings over there and pruning techniques. Can you turn the pruning guru off when you go there or are you still investigating? I can never turn the pruning guru off. I can never go anywhere and not look at something that was done wrong or when things are done right. A lot of people do things the right way, but man, when I see a ginkgo, for an example, that's been cut in half just because of a street sign, I walked into a park in South Korea and they had a lot of the junipers that were really carved into little dinosaurs, animals and stuff. To me, now that's cool because, you know, people spent time to make that plant like that. You can't just do that in one or two or three years of time. But when it comes to butchering a ginkgo tree, it only takes a second to do that. I've been to London and France. Those people really love their gardens. You see more proper way of pruning there than anywhere else because their gardens are so old and they know what not to do and what to do because they've seen it done the wrong in the right way. I would think they've been raised in a garden culture too. Yes, absolutely. Something else probably popped in your mind? I would say that an example that I would give about when you research a plant, make sure that you have the right botanical name when you're asking someone at a nursery to order you something. And here's an example, Buckeyes here in Atlanta. You, know, you never see them too big here, but you go into London and you get a Buckeye. I mean, those things are as large as our largest oak trees, as wide as the oak trees. I had never in my life seen Buckeyes that big. Didn't even know they got that big. Make sure that when you do order plant material that you know what you're getting, and that's why they put botanical names in front of them. Rick, tell us about your company and the services you offer and where people can find you. I started my company in 2002. The whole goal was to promote proper pruning in Atlanta because that's all I've ever known is working with Post Properties. That's that's all they did. I carried that practice here with a pruning guru and I trained my guys to do the exact same thing. We protect the customer's investment for the long run with that knowledge. That's something that I really believe in and can not change my ways. 
What an amazing conversation with Rick Smith, the pruning guru. This has been episode three of the Garden Question podcast. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Be well. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.